This is Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort. Today, I'm excited to give you an inside look at a part of the mobility mosaic we haven't really talked about much on Transit Unplugged, and that is medical assistance transportation. As you know, it's a big part of our communities in providing transportation for folks with low income to medical appointments. And there are millions and millions of trips provided on medical assistance transportation each year across the United States. And today we talk to the CEO, the largest provider of those trips, Logisticare Solutions. His name, Carter Pate. You may remember him when he was CEO of MV Transportation, the largest American-owned public transportation contracting company headquartered in Dallas, Texas, and now he's interim CEO of Providence and Logisticare Solutions. I recently sat down with him in Dallas and talked about his experiences, not only in these two roles, but in a number of other big positions, including he was the he's retired, but he was at PwC, their global managing partner for healthcare and government contracting, and he's on a number of other boards I talked to him about what it takes to lead billion-dollar organizations, some about his history in the contracted transportation industry and his role at MV, where he really was my boss back when I worked for them last decade or so in Washington, D.C. area. And he talks deeply about new technology and new approaches to providing better transportation for folks on medical assistance transportation. I think you'll find this a very interesting look inside the career and legacy of one of the giants of our industry and a take on medical assistance transportation and where it's going and how it integrates with public transportation on this special episode of Transit Unplugged. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals in North America. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. I'm Paul Comfort. Welcome to another edition of Transit Unplugged. And today we take a turn into the world of medical assistance transportation. It's one of the most important features of mobility in the United States, but we haven't really had a guest on to talk about it. And I'm excited today to have with us Carter Pate, who has a long background in public transportation and healthcare. And we're in Dallas, Texas with him. Thanks for being with us today, Carter. Glad to be with you, Paul. Carter and I go back a ways when I worked at MV Transportation. He was the CEO of the company back then, and uh, we always put him way up on a pedestal because he is one of the sharpest guys in the business, and I still consider him that. Uh, so why don't you tell us some about your background, how you, how you ended up where you're at today, Carter? Well, I, uh, by education, I am uh, an accountant, a licensed CPA, spent uh, the bulk of my career at PricewaterhouseCoopers, which is the largest accounting and consulting firm in the world. Toward the latter part of my career, I was the U.S. and global healthcare leader, which also involved large-scale contracts with states, municipalities, governments around the world. So uh, the healthcare side of my background, and probably more importantly, the uh, government contracting side was what opened the door for the transport when I retired at PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, back years ago. Okay. And so uh, how long were you there at PwC? I'm going to guess uh, close to about 20 years. Pricewaterhouse bought my consulting firm, Pate Winters Stone. Okay. And so I became a direct admit partner and then worked my way up onto the 
management committee of running the U.S. Uh, there were about seven or eight of us. And then later I moved into the global organization and became one of the industry leaders of healthcare and government mm. worldwide. Wow. And then uh, what did you do after that? Well, I was about to retire in the big four firms. Mandatory retirement is 60 years of age. And you know that when you go in, that on your 60th birthday, that happens to coincide with your last day. Mm. And so I was, at the time, I was probably about 57 or so, and a headhunter called about the uh, opportunity to be CEO in uh, MV Transportation, which was headquartered in California. And uh, I had a, a interest in it after listening to it and went and interviewed uh, with uh, the owners and founders. Alex and Faison Lottie. That's right. Yep. Uh, Alex Lottie, one of the giants of the industry. Uh, and we had a good conversation, but I did not see myself uh, living in uh, Northern California. So we sort of parted ways, and I thanked him for the interview, and Faison was wonderful in the interview. I remember her being so uh, nice, along with Alex. And a couple days later, John Monson, who is another giant yes, in this industry, industry and yeah. well-known, called me and said, what if we move the headquarters? We've been thinking about uh, that anyway, because we're now bi-coastal and no longer a West Coast company. And MV had won some major contracts throughout the East Coast. And so a central location appealed to them. And uh, that's the rest of the history. And then I accepted, left PricewaterhouseCoopers to become the CEO of MV and moved the headquarters to Dallas, Texas. MV, a lot of people know, but probably a lot don't, is the largest American contract transportation company in, in our public transit sphere. So you are leading the number one company that does this. And tell us some about your experiences there. Oh, it was a terrific experience, and I would have to say that uh, it was because of the people. I don't think I've ever worked with uh, better people in my life. They were all mission-minded. Uh, I learned a lot from the people. Uh, I think of the days of Kevin Klicka and others that uh, spent a lot of time uh, with me, John Monson, of understanding the fundamentals. We... Uh, that mission focused uh, for the most vulnerable side of our population was one that really resonated with me and to this day that you have to have a, a genuine care and love for these people and their needs to be able to access facilities and care. And so out of that, uh, Alex and Faison Lottie built a business and that uh, business became the giant it is today of MV Transportation. That's something. And its headquarters still here in Dallas. I just drove by their headquarters yesterday. Yes, I, as yeah. I understand it, it's still uh, doing well, and they're still winning contracts and still have friends there to this day. That's something. So how long were you there at MV? I was there a little over three years um, and then retired from that business and um, started entering into a professional director of different public companies, which had been my background at PricewaterhouseCoopers thereafter. And so what are you doing now? Well, uh, right now I'm the uh, interim CEO of another public company called Providence Service Corp. 
and uh, directly in the transport space, we own 100% of Logisticare, which is headquartered in Atlanta. And I'm also the interim CEO of Logisticare. And Logisticare is the largest uh, non-emergency medical transporter in the United States. It's commonly referred to as NEMT uh, in the transport industry, but a bit different from the paratransit fixed route and corporate shuttle school bus uh, business, kind of in a sector of its own. Mm. So I, I want to go back to MV, and maybe you could compare and contrast uh, the public transit, paratransit world versus a non-emergency medical transportation, kind of for the uninitiated. What's the difference and you know, the roles of each one in our industry sphere? In the uh, paratransit and fixed route uh, business, your clients are going to be uh, they will most likely own their own vehicles and that you will route and maintain the vehicle, furnish the driver, and do everything other than own the asset. And that sprang up uh, because of the DOT funding mechanism where our tax dollars through maybe either uh, gasoline taxes or in some cases sales taxes fund the purchase of the vehicle but not necessarily the operating dollars. And so ticket sales and other taxes uh, form the basis for that industry. And it is heavily dominated by three or four major players in the United States, some of which are headquartered offshore, as you know. Let's just name them out for folks. It would be Transdev, First Transit, MV, Keolis, some of the big players, National Express, Absolutely. Right. You've yeah. named the book. That's probably 85% of the market share right. in the U.S., as I understand it or recall. Mm -hmm. And the NEMT business is in a different sector. We are uh, a, have a significant size in that market. and yeah, that You're the market leader, right? We are yeah. by a factor of probably three or four times wow. the uh, size of the closest competitor. We are public, so I'm not giving you any information yes. that's... We'll do probably a billion six, a billion seven in revenue this year. We're in 49 states. Uh, I have about 4,000 employees uh, headquartered out of Atlanta. And taking people to doctor's appointments. That's exactly right. right. The, uh, it is a benefit of Medicaid, mm -hmm. uh, which services the most vulnerable part of our society. That is a government-sponsored, really a safety net in healthcare yes. in the United States. And then we also have the uh, very fast component uh, of Medicare Advantage, uh, which is probably my fastest growing uh, sector, which is uh, way more than double digit growth compared to a uh, growth of uh, three to 5% in Medicaid. Okay, tell so us about two that. Two different programs. Yeah, what is that? Because I'm not sure if I understand So that. Medicare Advantage uh, is a supplement policy that uh, you get guys like me that got a little gray hair that are on Medicare, they're looking for a supplement policy, and that during the supplement policy, uh, different uh, MCOs or uh, care organizations will offer benefits, and one of the benefits is transport okay. to the uh, medical provider. So to the doctor, home from the doctor, as a benefit. And so uh, our job is to figure out the most efficient way to get them to that appointment and then get them back home. Um, and like anything else in the transport, it's all about efficiency and value of the dollar. And that's for elderly folks, people that are 
course, I'm getting close to that age. I don't consider elderly, but over maybe 65 when you're on Medicare, yes. Medicare, and the other is Medicaid, which is for low income. That's and correct. And you're doing both of those. Now, is the Medicare one, is that administered through the federal government, or is it pushed down through the states? Me both Medicaid and Medicare are federal programs mm -hmm. administered by the states. Okay. So the concept, I guess, being that it's a lot cheaper to get someone to the doctor to pay for their transportation than to maybe have them stuck in a nursing home or stuck in a hospital for long periods of time. So it's a low, lower cost, more efficient way of doing things, providing I, care. Yes, yeah, you, you're right on point. Is the uh, efficiency of the doctors in a Medicare, Medicaid payer scenario is you want them back to back. And so if you have three or four no-shows due to transportation, the efficiency model is broken then, and you've got, uh, you're selling time for a living in theory. And so there, these are non-billable hours. So it becomes very important, uh, one, for the efficiency of the model to get them to the doctor, mm. and number two, for their own health and well-being. Right. That you don't want a simple solution for an illness to be magnified where they later show up in the emergency room because the level of care wasn't administered early on. And now they're ended up costing the taxpayers a lot more as a result right. of that. So do uh, do the clients have to pay a fare to ride the service or is it normally completely covered by the insurance? It's generally covered by the insurance okay. uh, as opposed to paratransit or fixed route where there may be a fare component depending on how the cities have uh, set up the service or the county has set up the service. Right, that's good. So. Um, uh, how, what's the model that most of these big providers like Logisticare are using? Are you running your own vehicles? Are you having brokers? You're a broker and you have other providers. Tell us how that all works. Well, we have uh, hundreds and hundreds of contracts uh, in 49 states that I may have said earlier. And in that model, we are very careful to, some of them are capitated and some are non-capitated. And we will bid on those contracts either by the state administered or the MCO, which is Managed Care Organization, will bid on those contracts just like they do in the paratransit or fixed route industry, and there's an award. There are times where the MCOs have an immediate need and that they can go directly because the, the contracts administ as administered by the state call for maximum efficiency. So in their wisdom, if they can feel they're getting high value for it that sometimes we're able to contract directly outside of the bid system. But that's a little more rare than right. you would imagine. And when you say capitated, tell us what that means. Well, basically they pay a fee uh, multiplied times how many members there are in a state or a uh, service area. And that's a flat fee you get. And anyone that wants a ride, you're to furnish the ride. So statistically, you're doing a lot of homework to understand what is the volume, what is the need, and how often do they travel, and you try to nail the frequency and the amount of usage, and then you bid on an estimated fee. Sometimes that works, and other times you can have a disastrous situation, i.e. opioid crisis. Right, okay. Has yeah. raised its uh, sad head in the United States where We've got certain states that have a full-blown opioid crisis, which requires, in some cases, daily visits for treatment. And that frequency, oh, yeah. uh, it can destroy your model. 
And then you got to go put your heads back together and see if there's a new meeting of the mind because of the frequency. So you and your company really then have to be experts in efficiency when it comes to providing transportation and forecasting. <laughs> I would doubt there's no one that you haven't interviewed on your podcast that isn't an expert <laughs> in that, or they probably have got a pretty short career. Yeah. That is the rule of the day. You've got to understand your numbers. And often in this business, as uh, I learned early on, is the one that makes the biggest mistake wins the contract. Mm. You don't want to be. The, <laughs> you don't always want to be that one that wins. Huh? Well, sometimes uh, that's the luck of the draw, but yeah. sometimes uh, it's not all that seems. Sometimes there are bid mistakes made and assumptions that don't hold water, and uh, someone can win a contract and then immediately regret it six months to a year later. Mm-hmm. So there's plenty of those stories to go around in our industry among your listeners, I'm sure. Yep. So let's talk about some of the challenges that you face in operating and maybe some of the victories that you've had. Any stories or thoughts you want to tell us about that, either at MV or here? You're a veteran with got some, we just had breakfast together and had some great stories. Which ones can you tell us? <laughs> well, I don't know if the innocents want to be called out, but there, there are uh, quite a lot of uh, stories in the industries, uh, some of which are mostly centered around uh, poor behavior Mm. that goes on. I particularly remember uh, in the school bus business, and you'll remember this from your own background of working with unions, is that I went to my first union negotiation and uh, learned my lesson about parking in the parking lot without plenty of lights. So I became fairly known for stopping by the franchise Rent-A-Wreck, and I would drive the car that was in the worst possible shape, (laughs) and then usually after about eight or nine hours of going at it in pretty intense negotiations, I'd be treated to all four flat tires when I came out. Oh, boy. So, you know, there's some funny things that are just part of the uh, business, but I learned not to drive my Hertz (laughs) to the meeting. Don't drive an Avis or a Hertz to the meeting. Uh, So there's there's some funny stories that have happened over the years, all of which... uh, really form great memories about the transport industry and the need to serve the public. I rarely get an opportunity to interview someone with uh, the leadership background that you've had in the public companies and public sector. Tell us some of what you consider some of the secrets of success for someone who might be listening to this show today of rising in leadership and wherever they're at in the industry. What are the keys to help you rise to the top to become, I mean, you're one of the most venerated CEOs in our industry. What, how did you get there? What are some lessons that you've learned that you can pass on? I guess I would say that one of the things I tried to keep in mind is never confuse effort with results. They're very two different uh, levels of thought. Going after with laser precision a goal and not trying to have too many. So many people try to fix too many things at one time and uh, being thoughtful and understanding in order what are the things that need the most attention and then give those the level of effort. Number two, I would say uh, being a CEO of now, this is my probably third or fourth gig, is uh, you lose control of your own schedule. Mm. And, you know, people are always running in your office with their hair on fire about this, that, or the other. And as a CEO, you're responsible for setting direction and making sure there's a sense of purpose and what is your mission? Why are you there to exist? 
And getting that confidence in your own schedule of giving yourself time to think appropriately instead of running meeting to meeting where you're spending your day putting out fires. I was more successful in gaining control of my own schedule and setting the schedule so that I was willing to uh, only entertain those type of fire moments several times a day, but I would try to control my schedule and through a series of discipline, make sure that I'm uh, on mission, on target, and what was the original goal I set out for myself for the week. And then by Thursday or Friday, uh, go back and reflect on what you wanted to accomplish at the beginning of the week, and then try to salvage the rest of your schedule and make sure that you achieve those goals. So that would be some of the things I think that are important as you go up to the top. And then lastly, when you start at the bottom, like uh, I did, I, I was a dishwasher when I was 14, is don't ever lose sight of the importance of the people in your organization, whether it's your drivers or your dispatch or your call centers. Understand your mission and be among the people. That's where your money is made. In the transport business, uh, pennies become nickels, nickels become dimes and understanding how that works throughout your organization is gonna be the key to your success. Mm. Getting out of the office is probably the most single important thing I do. Okay, that's good. You've had experience at the top of uh, publicly traded companies and you're on boards. A lot of our listeners are in the public sector. They're working for government agencies. Could you tell us some about what some of the, what's important to big corporations? What are, what are they trying to accomplish? These big companies like we talked about, Transdev, Keolis, MV, others. What's the key to success there? What are they, they're obviously they want to make money, right? But they understand that in order to make money, they have to do what? What are the keys to success for these big companies? I think some people fail to understand their clients' needs. You cannot underestimate that in the public sector, they are mission driven. Yes. Okay. And in that mission, they want to execute with the best of us. These are some of America's most talented executives in the government sector. Right. Like Gary uh, Thomas, who we were just talking about here in yes, Dallas. Yes. Uh, yeah. My God, he's a legend here in Dallas yeah. and uh, very thoughtful, will take the time to meet uh, with anybody, a, a real successful executive. And I would tell you, uh, trying to understand what their mission is and getting clarity of what do they want out or done this year? What's what's the number one, two, and three things they want to do? And then embracing their goals as your own will draw you into a partnership or a relationship that uh, those bonds are uh, not easily broken. So when there is a screw up, uh, they know that you understand their mission and they're far more willing to cut you some slack if you're on mission. It's when you put the bottom line ahead of, of the mission, then I think the corporate and uh, governmental sector diverse and each views the other doesn't understand what's important. So that would be the uh, thing that was, uh, as I look back at my career of trying to make sure that all of the people that I have worked with understand what is that mission and why are we here? That's good. Yeah. I I always like to say that relationships are the grease that make the gears of commerce turn. So these these, uh, grind, these some things get grinding and then you have a relationship because you have identified with them and then that helps it be smoother a little bit. That's good. Um, One other kind of just leadership question I was wondering about. So you're, let's say you're CEO, like you are now, you're CEO of a company with thousands and thousands of employees. 
what's the most effective way to communicate? You know, the, the good book says without a progressive vision, we dwell carelessly, right? So you want to have a progressive vision for your staff and you want to lay out, here's our direction because you're the out front. With the, how do you get that message really to be grasped and understood by the staff so that they will do it even when they're not being looked at? You know, the Hawthorne effect, right? People's behavior changes when they're being observed. You can't always watch these employees who are out in the field. So how are you getting them to accomplish the mission that you want them to? Well, the, the modern technology makes that a lot easier to communicate. So I would answer it in twofold, one of which what I do, I've got a call, and we call it an all-hands call coming okay. up Thursday that will be done on video where it'll be a live feed on the internet as well as you can call into it. And this is my chance to uh, talk to my employees for the month. Everyone is invited. We try to set it at a responsible time of the day where they can see it coming and work around their own appointments if this is a priority to them to listen. And I will convey uh, what are the messages that I want to get all the way down to throughout the organization. So I'll go through the financials. Since we are public, I'll share that information right down to the detail. Then we'll move into operational. We'll move into safety issues. We'll move into uh, mission of new product or new introduction. We'll have a uh, talk about new wins and the importance. But this is how I communicate through the uh, right to the uh, every corner of the business. A and dispatcher somewhere. and Yeah, they, yeah. they can listen too. So I don't have to have my message filtered. Okay. And then we do the courageous thing, which is let them queue up and ask questions on the live <laughs> mic. Oh, wow. So you can, yeah. you can have some interesting questions when people uh, feel at home. Yes. We usually start looking for written questions about a week early. So okay. I'll, you know, when there's a little bit of silence, I'll ask to reach out. And then last, we have other communication with email, uh, birthday cards that I learned from uh, Alex Lottie to write a birthday card to everyone on their birthday. That's or, right. There's you other, send me one every year. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's other ways to communicate your message and then get out of the office, which is the second piece, and then uh, have a town hall at the local operation so they can feel and sense your sincerity and love for mission. Mm, that's good. Uh, so based on where you're at now, what do you see happening in the future for medical assistance, transportation, and, this, and the Medicaid side of things, Medicare as well? Do you see uh, continued federal funding making this a priority? Do you see new models coming? I mean, is there anything in the future you see that you'd like to share with us? Well, it's all going to be tied to the political landscape. Uh, okay. As you know, uh, there are some candidates uh, running for office with uh, Medicare for all. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So a single payer is something that uh, could be very costly, but uh, we're one of the, because I ran healthcare worldwide, we're among the last countries on the planet that have a complete private system with a quasi-government support for those uh, with the safety net need or those that are over 65. So uh, I'm keeping a close eye on that. Uh, what will it mean? We're fortunate because we already deal with government payers, so it wouldn't be a, a huge model disruption for us to uh, uh, see an increase in the role of single payer. As far as the consolidation front for us, moving into uh, a complete, I'll call it one call type system where MCOs uh, want to be able to be more data driven 
and completely wring out the last of the efficiencies. So when my 62 million people that we carry every year to the doctor come out with a prescription in their hand, can we help them fill fill the prescription or durable medical equipment called DME? Do they need a walker? Do they need a wheelchair? Do they need crutches? Do they, what else do they need in order to recover appropriately? Pulling all that together as a one-stop shop will be a vision that everyone will want to uh, watch in the future. So that would be a little bit into my crystal ball. Yeah, that's very interesting. I could see that happening. Yep. I guess last question, as you look over your career, besides just the leadership thing, is there any other kind of lessons you've learned or thoughts you'd have for the thousands of people that listen to this show that are in the that are in the mobility business? That's, as you know, we're changing the name. It's not public transportation anymore. Now it's mobility because it includes Uber and Lyft and Medicaid, all these people where cities like Dallas are trying to be the mobility aggregator, right? So they're pulling together all of it. So in this big mobility sphere, any other thoughts for people as we as we continue to move into now the 2020s? <laughs> I think the, uh, you know, as I look back at my own career, the most exciting years are actually in front of us, mm. not behind us is the uh, with the introduction of artificial intelligence and the driverless uh, uh, vehicles from uh, you know uh, LTL to cargo transport where transcontinental without a drivers coming into play I saw some of the tests that were going out on I40 which is a coastal coast to coast highway throughout the United States that I saw testing uh, beginning to uh, uh, some of the exciting things that Lyft and Uber, who are our partners in our business, uh, are doing. So all of that artificial intelligence uh, is going to be a journey. The apps have taken on where self-diagnostic healthcare integration with transport to the doctor, talking a little bit in code here so I don't get into my own corporate strategy, but so you know, I think the next 10 years are going to be the most exciting times in the mobility industry as further refinements on how we attack the efficiency out of the model and get people from A to B in a uh, consolidated strategy so that we're taking different modes of transport. And Gary is doing that here with uh, opening up the transportation from the uh, DFW airport and the rail. And then we got the high-speed rail going in to Houston coming in Hopefully in the next uh, two years, they'll start that up. So I would tell you, if you're entering this industry, it's going to uh, be a wild ride. (laughs) Well, and thank you for the leadership you've given over the past so many years for us and that you continue to provide in the mobility industry. And thanks for being with us today as our guest on Transit Unplugged. Thank you, Paul. It was good to see you again. Thank you. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.